Have you ever found yourself wondering about how artificial intelligence and faith intersect? My name is Elias Kruger. And I am Maggie Bender. And you are listening to the AI Theology Podcast, where faith and technology interact, taking you into an interesting and mind-challenging dialogue. Here we talked about how emerging technologies can align with the flourishing of all of life. Join us and expand your mind with topics like AI ethics, AI for good, guest interviews, and more. Welcome to our second episode of AI Theology Podcast. Today, we'll be tackling the topic of AI and warfare. War is a reality right now in Eastern Europe and other parts of the world. By the most recent UN estimates, the war in Ukraine has resulted in over 5,000 casualties. Now, before we move on into this conversation, we want to acknowledge those who are suffering right now. Whether it is mourning a loved one, being displaced, or recovering from unimaginable physical or psychological wounds. We dare not move forward without recognizing and just pausing for a brief silence in their honor. Okay, now that we have taken a deep breath and a pause, um, let's talk about uh, more about AI and warfare. This topic came up in a recent AI Theology Advisory meeting in which Dr. Josh Smith, who has written extensively on the topic, including his recent book, Robot Theology, he was able to give us foundational knowledge for some interesting reflection to happen. But before we move into that, I would first like to level set on some definitions. So Maggie, why don't you help us with that? So I think even before the definitions, I think one of the things is to set the scope of the conversation. So first of all, let's get rid of some myths out there. Um, we're not talking about Skynet, where we had self-aware AI machines bent on destroying all humanity. We're nowhere near that level. So we won't be discussing that today. Instead, we're going to be talking about some current technologies that are being used on the ground um, and air by the militaries. But before we get there, even, we need to talk about different types of AI within warfare. That's right, Maggie. As we learn in our discussion, there is a vast, really a vast field going on that I honestly, I wasn't even aware. But I think a good distinction to start with is the difference between defensive versus offensive uses of AI technology in warfare. So that is one thing. And in this case, the defensive are systems that will not react or engage until engaged to or until attacked. And offensive are ones that are specifically, you know, as the word means, you know, specifically out there to attack. Beyond that, we also have another category, uh, two categories, which is semi-autonomous versus fully autonomous, right? So semi-autonomous, those usually happen uh, a lot now in defensive systems. They will not engage with the target without a human in the loop. So not only they won't engage with the target, but they won't just react or basically attack until somebody pulls the trigger. And that's why they're semi-autonomous because it means the AI has not full control over it. There's always a human in the loop. The flip side of that would be fully autonomous where you know, the system basically is based on an algorithm to make a decision to engage on their own. And in that case, that system may calculate uh, damage risk and probabilities and then make a decision on its own. So those are kind of some grounding categories that we need to put up front so we can continue in this discussion. And the important thing to 
notice here is that these types of weapons are beginning to be used on both sides of the conflict. Ukraine has been using this Turkish-made uh, TB2 drone that can take off, land, and cruise autonomously. However, it's still considered a self-autonomous drone because you need to have an operator that actually pulls the trigger. On the Russian side, they have Landsat, which is also called the suicide drone. It can travel up to 130 kilometers uh, for 30 minutes, and then it uses an intelligent uh, detection to identify objects in real time, and then deliberately crashes into it, detonating three kilo explosive. So certainly, you know, the country that's able to establish dominance in AI as a technology, that country could could really have an advantage in the field of battle, right? It could really mean in, in the near future, the difference between victory and defeat. It's a big deal. And it's no surprise that a lot of nations are seeking supremacy in that. However, you know, AI is, is, is so uh, ubiquitous right now that it's really not limited just to the battlefield, right? 21st century wars are not fought only in the battlefield, but in multiple fronts. Let's talk through some examples of that. Absolutely. Facial recognition startups from around the world have been joining in an effort to help Ukraine. Clearview is probably the most famous example of facial recognition. This is the interesting part. It actually is using photo uploads from social media to compile and create their database. As soon as you have a photo uploaded on social media, that's your permission. You're not getting giving extra permission. And like our other examples, it's not just on one side, it's both sides. Russia's version of Clearview is called Find Clone. And it just uses it's the same kind of premise here, but it's just using social medias uh, from Russia as opposed to the United States. So the spatial recognition on the good side, this is one of those things that can be good side, bad side. On the good side, it's being used for identifying dead soldiers, find where they are, if there's still some stranded survivors to go back and find them. But on the bad side, uh, facial recognition can also be used to identify targets, potential targets, and eliminate them. So this is another example of how something that might be kind of innocuous, although it is creepy as a premise, can be used in multiple different ways within warfare. Absolutely. And that's in many ways a way to support efforts to recognize the dead or, I mean, you can't be on, on targeting as well, but there's also combative ways, right? That the AI can be weaponized, which is you know a lot more direct. Why don't we talk a little bit about a few examples there? One of the examples is um, deepfakes, right? So deepfakes got a lot of coverage because of models, deepfakes of porn pictures, primarily trying to put bodies into faces, and it, it became a big issue, it continues to be a, a, a very controversial uh, use of AI. But recently, they were able to catch, basically, Russia was able to create a video with the Ukraine presidents kind of asking Ukrainians to lay down their arms. So now imagine that, right? The president of the other country, basically surrendering. Can you imagine how much confusion that can create? And uh, the good thing is that it was clearly identified, tagged as deepfake, and it didn't go very far. But that just shows the potential of, of deepfakes, right? So if we can put a face into a body, we can put a video, 
we can move, we can literally create a video of somebody doing something that they never did that can create devastating consequences in war and morale, destabilize, you know, a, a whole nation. So thankfully this one was caught, but you know, this is not going to be the last time that this is going to happen. You know, so that's definitely something we want to be looking out for. Yeah. So we have all of these examples, um, even though it's not exactly combat or warfare directly, these other uses, the facial recognition, deep fakes, uh, disinformation are all building into this whole whole larger world of a warfare infrastructure. And one of the things that I think about a lot when uh, it comes to some of these bigger things is um, I know from like the technical perspective, you get into these really granular conversations about things such as effectiveness and the precision of AI models. I know for me, like like the biggest risk uh, previously was maybe somebody would get a message that really just didn't work out for them and they didn't click on it. But now when we start looking at this, now things are life and death consequences. Hmm. Ilias, have you had any examples of what? Yeah, associated uh, all the time. Uh, So obviously, when when you're building models in the business or any scenario, there is a concern about how well is your model performing? Basically, how well is it guessing? You know, whether it's a face or a number uh, or whether somebody's going to buy something or not. And um, what is interesting is that there's a different cost to making a mistake, right? So some models, like you said, you, you get it wrong. So be it. Maybe you get that extra piece of mail or you get a, a, an additional thing on your, your browser or you get recommended a movie that really doesn't mean anything. Right. So there you go. That's that's the cost of, of a, uh, a false what we like to call uh, a false positive. Right. The model thought it was for you and it's not. So it was incorrect. But this can really take different shades, uh, even in the business world, like, for example, in things like fraud, right? So now it's, it's a little more serious because fraud, you can think about this. If the model says that a transaction is fraud, then, you know, as a financial institution, you have, you have two options. You either accept it or you stop it, right? Well, if, if the fraud indeed is fraud and you stop it, great. But what if your model thought it was fraud, but it wasn't. But now you created a really bad experience. Maybe somebody's in a grocery store, they have 150 items and their transaction gets uh, declined, right? So what can you do? Sometimes you say, okay, it thinks it's fraud. Uh, I think we're okay. We'll let it through, right? On the other hand, it could be the other way in which the fraud model does not identify, doesn't think it's fraud, says, no, no, this is not fraud. And then it turns out to be fraud. Well, now you're creating another problem for your customer because now the customer can lose all these, this money, right? So all of this is a little more serious, but nothing compares to what we're talking about here, right, Meg? I think we're getting to a whole new dimension where uh, model mistakes can mean life and death, can mean uh, destabilizing the military, can mean, you know, uh, change of regimes, right? So we're talking about much bigger issues here. Yeah, yeah, much bigger issues, higher, higher risk. And the scary thing about it is that it's happening kind of under, uh, in the background. Like we don't talk about the consequences of these models, like, you know, um, or even how they're impacting our lives. Um, It's just happening um, without us actually knowing about it and really thinking about it because this stuff does get extremely technical. And even when you're trying to explain this to somebody who should be a decision maker and should be responsible for decisions like this, 
half the time, um, it's, it's just way over technical. So you don't always even get the, the best results with that. But I think the, the bottom line here is when we're looking at AI and warfare um, is that these things have to be thought about in the context of the severity of life or death decisions. We can see already that we have this game theory situation where each government is starting to make moves based on what they think the other government will do. So now it's not even just about escalating uh, nuclear issues between con countries. We're now starting to see these types of AI, uses of AI, that are starting to create their own escalation process. Absolutely. You know, that's part of a broader topic on the race for AI warfare supremacy. We don't really have... A lot of time to dig into it, but I think it's important to say that at least right now, we are in a three-way race for AI supremacy, right? We have kind of the European Union, the United States, and China vying for that spot to be the country that really is ahead and controls that technology. You know, obviously, we could see here, you know, as you can easily see, as these technologies get involved in warfare, that race could start looking a lot more like the Cold War nuclear race, right, where you're really trying to outdo your opponent by developing more accurate, more deadly AI. And this is obviously a scenario that we would not like to see, but it seems to be kind of a reality already underway. This is all very interesting and it kind of helps us ground this topic on the technology side. But of course, we are AI theology podcasts. And so why don't we start diving into, let's say, the more theological side of this topic. Maggie, why don't you start us off? So the first piece on the theological side that we should talk about is just war theory. It's a very classical articulation of war in theology. It will ask questions such as, is this war a just cause? Is this war with the right intention? Is the authority legitimate? Is this a last resort? However, as we've seen in the last few decades, that this type of approach to understanding war and theology can lead to things such as trying to justify preemptive strikes. Yeah, Maggie, um, I'm old enough to remember <laughs> how uh, in the Iraq conflict, the United States and especially President Bush used just war theory to justify a preemptive strike on Saddam Hussein. And remember, that was very much in the news. And part of it was, again, it was kind of this idea of legitimacy. Now, with history's hindsight, we may look at that very differently and wonder whether there was really true a true cause or a just cause for that, right? So I, I think we want to, as we're talking about this, we want to talk about the concepts, but also how they get applied. And honestly, how can they, they can be used sometimes to one government's advantage to try to justify something that they're having a hard time to do. And I think that's important, the, the thought about using theology to justify something. And I know that there are new lines of thought thinking about war and theology. And I was wondering if you could dig into the concepts of radical nonviolence and the ethic of the New Testament. A great question. So there's been, especially in, in scholarship, rising a this you know stronger idea of a radical nonviolence ethic, specifically to the New Testament. One could speak of the uh, the Old Testament accounts of war and genocide and how some of that in, in some passages seem to be somewhat justified. But in the New Testament, the, the picture is really a lot clearer. And so according to Christian ethicist and theologian Richard Hayes, the witness of the New Testament speaks overwhelmingly in favor of 
radical nonviolence. And I think that's a very important point. And it's not just the Gospels. The Gospels clearly, probably the epitome of that is the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus simply says, you know, if someone strikes you in one cheek, you give the other. So if you blow that up into kind of a policy, right, it sounds like any retaliation of a violent kind is being kind of condemned. And there's been discussion about this verse and the Sermon on the Mount for centuries. And I don't you know, I don't mean here that, to explain it, but what I'm saying is there's clearly a strong tradition within Christianity for nonviolence, right? And that was very much a part, and I would say possibly a dominant part in post-Constantinian, so before 300 AD, Christianity, where some Christians would even refuse to join the army simply because they felt that the word to follow the words of Jesus, to follow Jesus, they should not engage in any violence, right? Now, after you have this marriage between power and religion, and Christianity becomes the religion of empire, that becomes a lot harder (laughs) to maintain. And so we see a falling away from that. However, there is a witness that has continued through history, right? So we think about the Quakers, the Anabaptists, and more recently, of course, a great example within the U.S. context, Martin Luther King Jr.'s strategy of nonviolence for civil rights. Clearly, we can see a connection there with the radical uh, nonviolence ethic of the New Testament. And so I want to, as, as we proceed, to say that, you know, some would argue that a faithful Christian view would preclude AI or any technology from being engaged in violence, defensive or otherwise, right? There should at least be some type of allergy or, or some resistance to that. If followed at a national level, of course, I will confess that that's, that's a hard principle to follow from a governmental perspective. If, uh, if we do that, I think we would all feel vulnerable and afraid that any nation could attack and take over. So I understand the complexities of that, and that's not just a one way or, or, or you know, uh, that there's a lot more nuance. But with, with that said, and without trying to resolve this moral conundrum, I would say that at least anyone who associates with a nonviolent Messiah, who Jesus clearly was and is, that that person should be at least uncomfortable with any discussion that legitimizes direct violence of any kind. And so I think if we want to follow that, one could make the argument that any use of AI for warfare would be illegitimate in view of a Christian ethic. That makes total sense to me. And what I think is really interesting here is just the starting points of these two different systems of thought. You know, we have just war, which tacitly, or well, maybe explicitly, assumes that war is inevitable. So therefore, they need to find a justification for it. And then with the non, the radical nonviolence ethic of the New Testament, in that vein of scholarship, it completely turns it on the head and just says, we're not even going to start there. We have a completely different starting point. And we're going to just look at it about from this other perspective. In the same way, digging a little bit more back into the technology piece, within models, you're creating these things that they'll call targets or objective uh, functions. And... Right now, even within some of the the current technologies we see, they'll try to do things like minimizing the loss of life and collateral damage. But what would happen if we would just apply the same type of like different perspective approach um, that we just talked about in these two different theological systems? For example, instead of trying to minimize the loss of life, what would happen if the AI was, was focused on maximizing the preservation of life? And even just this slight switch from an minimize or from a minimizing aspect 
to a maximizing aspect might do us some really good. Yeah, no, that's a, I think that's a fantastic insight. And, and in many ways, I think it's at least closer to that ethic of uh, nonviolence of the New Testament, right? So if we were to, to bring this maybe a little bit further, right, expand that, obviously any system right now is trying to minimize loss of life. But what if we had a, a system that is trying to maximize life preservation on both sides, that in some ways it's actually above the rivalries that are being fought for. I, I remember there is this, this fantastic verse in, in Joshua where Joshua is getting ready for battle and he meets this figure. We don't know if it's an angel. Some, some people say, you know, it's an archetype of Jesus. And he asks, who are you for? And the angel says, neither. I'm not. I'm not taking sides here, you know. And and I think that that's a, a a great perspective to me on 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 a divine view of war. That in some ways there is the God probably weeps for for both sides. We are to believe that the God creates it all and treats us as children. Then it's like children fighting with each other, and there will never like you, you brought up Maggie that that maybe war was never acceptable to begin with, and as opposed to just considering it as a given. Absolutely, and I think that change in perspective is the most important piece here, switching from just accepting things as is and starting to speculate and think bigger and look for insights on how we can make, we can move towards a better future together. And it's such a complicated situation, not just only on the political aspects, but even down to the personal level and the trauma that people are experiencing Mm -hmm. as well. And AI isn't going to fix any of these things, but it definitely is something that I think any conscientious person, particularly Christians that are focused on life, should really be making sure that they're keeping a pulse on the types of things that are being done so that we can be aware of it. We may not be able to change it directly, but the longer that this type of stuff goes on under the radar is being allowed to flourish and grow in ways that are won't be good. So I know we're not at Skynet yet. Mm-hmm. I hope we are never at Skynet. Right, but there's small steps that people take towards either good or evil. That's definitely a, a great perspective. I, I I would say that, and part of our mission here is to bring things to light, right? To start those discussions, we could easily just take it for granted that you know AI is being used. It's going to be used. It's a foregone conclusion. Uh, one could even say, well, that's something that's being determined by governments. It's like, who am I? Right? I have no power. And what we're seeing, what, what I think it's interesting, there is kind of a story of democratization there. You know, if we go back to this, uh, the drone being used by Ukraine was developed by by Turkey, and it's relatively cheap. And 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 what that means is that now you have a technology that is uh, really now able to to even a small country that's just trying to resist a, a, a much bigger. Uh, military. And now there's this almost evening out because they have access to a technology that would be so expensive before that only, you know, big nations or, you know, superpowers would have access to. And again, it, 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 it might not necessarily diminish the need for war. Obviously, those are still, you know, even defensive, they're still weapons of war. And we have to keep that in mind. But I could see, I guess what I'm trying to say is I can see AI also kind of helping maybe the leveling of the play of play field and creating more equity, right? So that, you know, nations are going to think twice about maybe invading a small country because they think, well, this may not be as easy as I thought, right? So, so maybe there's 
again, a silver lining on this. Yeah, that makes sense. But on the other side, we might end up back at our conversation about game theory and how I can definitely see how this would really be uh, something that a smaller com- country would desire to have. But then it leads to this escalation. And But I think the important piece here is trying to bring these things to the surface and get exposure to them and to really have people who are willing to reflect and really think what we're doing. As you can imagine, this topic is extensive uh, and delicate. I remember uh, even in our ATAB meeting, uh, how emotionally charged it became simply because we were diving into these issues that are not just theoretical. They are out there. Lives are being taken by these technologies. So we don't, you know, we always want to don't want to ever take that for granted. In this little time, you know, we obviously can't cover everything. You know, we may return to this topic in a future episode. Until now, you may be wondering. So you're listening about this, and what can you do? Right? Obviously, we can't. You know, stop this war. But we do know one thing that this war has already caused uh, a, a lot of people to flee Ukraine. And now by UN estimates, there are over 5.6 million refugees. And this is something that the global community, you who are listening, can uh, can get involved in. We will provide here at least some links where you can you know, donate. And we certainly encourage you to it. And I think that's what we can all do. And even a, a small engagement this way can help. If anything, it may not stop war, but it can help alleviate the deadly outcomes of war. Another thing you can do is share this podcast with your friends, start up a conversation, and have the opportunity to really reflect on um, some of these bigger pieces. Rate us on your chosen podcast platform and remember the conversations about you as well. So follow us on Instagram and Facebook at AI Theology and join us in this conversation. Thank you and we'll see you next time.